Mandatory minimum sentences helped fill prisons in the U.S., playing a substantial role in the mass incarceration we see now. What were these sentences supposed to do, and where did they go wrong? Most importantly, how do we get rid of them? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system, and still so appreciative of that wonderful day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We all probably know that in the U.S. criminal court system, defendants who are found guilty of crimes or who plead guilty are then sentenced. They're given a punishment. The decision what the sentence should be is up to a judge. And we probably also know that the judge has some limits on what sentences she can give. Those limits are contained in criminal statutes. For example, a criminal statute will say that anyone who steals the property of another by force or threat of force has committed robbery. The statute will then go on to say that the person found guilty of robbery may be sentenced to prison for up to, oh, let's say, 10 years, fined up to $100,000 or both. This would mean that a judge could sentence the guilty person to 10 years or to 9 years or 5 years or 2 years or no years, not 11 years, and could put the person on probation for some or all of the sentence or following the sentence. There is discretion for the judge to, well, make a judgment about the right punishment that fits the crime and the defendant. Was this crime especially heinous or vicious? Was it especially dangerous, even if no one was hurt? Is this defendant a first offender or a person with a lengthy record of violent crimes? These are all typical factors committed to the discretion of the judge. Now, the parameters for sentencing, what the judge can and cannot give for any particular crime, come not from the judges themselves, but from those statutes. And those statutes are created by legislatures. In the states, the state legislature or general assembly, on the federal level, by the U.S. Congress. The legislature creates the range of punishment. The judge tailors the punishment to the offense and the offender. At least that's the way it usually works, because sometimes legislatures create a different sentencing arrangement. These kinds of sentences take that discretion away from judges. These sentences mandate, they command, that the judge shall give a sentence of not less than a certain number of years. The judge has no discretion to sentence a person to less, even if the judge feels that the offense and the offender deserve less prison time, even far less. Too bad. Here's a little audio from HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and a CNN clip he uses is thrown in too. Warning, here comes a little bit of vulgarity. 
Mandatory minimums require judges to punish certain crimes with a minimum number of years in prison, regardless of context, which is a little strange, because context is important. For instance, uh, shouting the phrase, I'm coming, is fine when catching a bus, but not OK when you're already on the bus. <laughs> so, circumstances make a huge difference. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, our current mandatory minimums were mostly passed during the tough-on-crime era of the 1980s and 90s, and they're partially responsible for the explosion of our prison population. Since 1980, the prison population has more than quadrupled. To put that into perspective, that means one out of every 100 adults is locked up. What has all of this meant for our criminal legal system, our judges, our prosecutors, our incarcerated persons, and our prisons during the past four decades as these mandatory minimum sentences have cropped up over and over in every state and in the federal system, too? Lots of them there. What should we do about them now? Our guest on this episode can show us the path. Kevin Ring is the president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group working since 1991 to modify and repeal mandatory minimum sentences. The group is often known as FAM. Before becoming FAM's president in 2017, he was the group's vice president and director of strategic initiatives. In his time before joining FAM, Mr. Ring had the quintessential high-flying Washington life. A lawyer, he worked for congressional committees on the Republican side of Congress. He served as executive director of the Republican Study Committee of the House. Then it was on to a lucrative career as a K Street lobbyist. Mr. Ring was named by the Hill newspaper, not once but twice, to the list of the top K Street rainmakers, the guys who bring in the big money. And then there was Jack Abramoff, the premier lobbyist of the era, going down in flames in a huge corruption scandal, and Mr. Ring was caught up in the scandal, too. He served 20 months in federal prison. Both before and certainly since that experience, getting rid of mandatory minimums became his cause and his work. Kevin Ring, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you being here. Let's start with the basics. Can you define what a mandatory minimum sentence is. What's a mandatory minimum? Sure. A mandatory minimum sentence is an automatic sentence that a judge has to give, regardless of the circumstances of the crime. Normally, a legislature will set out a range of penalties for a judge to consider. They'll say somebody should get two to five years, and then a judge, after someone's convicted, decides what's the appropriate punishment. In a mandatory minimum case, the legislature sets a minimum that the judge is not even legally uh, able to go below. So the Congress or state legislature will say, anybody who commits this crime must serve at least five, at least 10, at least 20 years. And the judge, no matter how wrong he or she thinks the sentence is, can't go below it. So it's pretty much a one size fits all sentence that is part of our system. One size fits all. That kind of captures the whole thing there. Uh, when you say one size fits all, you literally mean that for anybody convicted of crime X, the judge cannot go below the sentence that is set by the legislature. Yeah. And what happens is 
Most of the time, these laws are written with the worst offenders in mind. Think of the, one of the most heinous crimes you can think of, which is child sexual abuse through child pornography or the production of child pornography. When people think about that crime, they want to throw the book at a person. They think anybody who would take pictures of prepubescent children and put them on the internet for others' gratification. I mean, there's no punishment we're not willing to give that person. And yet that same law, that same crime and punishment apply and have applied in the past to an 18-year-old who's at college, who has his 16-year-old girlfriend back at home send nude pictures of herself to him. She has now been in the position of producing child pornography. And so what happens is Congress or state legislatures create a law and a punishment, and they can't foresee all the circumstances under which it's going to apply to people. And so they create this punishment, again, imagining the worst of situations. And what we have seen over time is it gets applied to everybody, even when it doesn't fit. Okay. And when you, this is very interesting. You say it doesn't fit. When we talk about the punishment fitting the crime, I mean, that's as old a saying as I've, as I've ever come across. And I teach very much the same thing in criminal law. Uh, and when we're talking about the punishment fitting the crime, we're talking about both the crime itself and the injury or damage to any victim or to society as a whole and the circumstances of the defendant. It's kind of, you know, that, that two axes and we're looking at where does this fall? What you're saying is that under mandatory minimums, none of that counts. Yeah. And that's the problem. I think the idea of punishment fitting the crime is as old as time itself. Um, this is a value of proportionality that has been accepted by criminologists forever, which is the idea that it's just common sense to people. If you commit a more serious crime, you deserve a more serious punishment. And of course, if you commit a lesser offense, you deserve something less. And it's how we punish our children. And so we want a system that allows for those sort of determinations. We want to be able to evaluate crimes and all of their circumstances so that we can tell what's more serious and what's less serious. And we also want to judge the defendant. Now, we don't want to judge the defendant based on things like race or gender or things that are not relevant, but we do wanna know what the circumstances were. Is this someone like John Valjean from Les Mis who's stealing a loaf of bread you know, to feed his family versus somebody who is committing a crime out of greed or vengeance? And so those things may matter to how we punish somebody. And we want a system that allows independent judges to have that discretion and mandatory sentences take that away from them. Right. That's a, that's a very good way of putting it. You know, I, I want to think back to when this sort of changed a lot and ramped up uh, because there've always been mandatory minimums. You know, if I recall thinking when I was a you know, pretty new lawyer, there were a few of these around uh, in the statute books, but it was really in the 1980s uh, with the uh, federal sentencing guidelines, that this really took on a life of its own. I mean, my recollection is that they sort of came on the scene first as a way of keeping uh, sentences fair, that uh, along with the sentencing guidelines, the idea was you shouldn't be able to walk into courtroom A accused uh, of this kind of crime with this kind of criminal background and get a different sentence that then you would get in courtroom B, same factors except a different judge. And the powerful and the rich could always do that. And the sentencing guidelines and some of this, these were designed to counteract that, right? And so was, was that part of the motivation 
did I get that right? I guess is what I'm asking. And, and what happened? Yeah, no, you've got that right. And you raised a lot of good issues because I think their function has, or their purpose has been twofold. One has been uniformity, getting rid of unwarranted disparities in sentencing, as you said, going to one judge and getting a lenient sentence and going to another judge and getting a harsh sentence. They've also been about just creating a certain amount of harshness. So if you look at the history of mandatory minimums, we've had them since the beginning of the country, and they've basically tracked whatever the crime du jour was. We have a mandatory minimum against pirates. Doesn't come into play a lot, but it, we have it. Uh, because at one time it did. After Robert F. Kennedy was shot and assassinated, we got the gun mandatory minimum sentence came into effect. And in the 80s and 90s, as you said, states and the federal government started creating mandatory minimums to go after drug crimes, because that was the number one problem in the country. Uh, particularly crack cocaine was con considered something that was not only harmful in itself, but that it was producing violence in the cities. And so mandatory minimums were designed, one, to just convey intolerance or frustration and anger at a certain crime. If, if you wanted to show you were serious about something as a politician, you passed the mandatory minimum. You didn't just increase the range of punishments and give judges more discretion, which was one way to approach it. You said, no, 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 you have to give this certain punishment. So it was to convey harshness. But what people don't uh, remember, unless they're sentencing nerds, is that Congress did two things. First, they passed the sentencing guidelines. And they said, we want to create some uniformity across the system to mm -hmm. avoid the inequities that you pointed out. Uh -huh. So they created guidelines, um, a commission to set up guidelines that said, look, here's the factors you should take into account. And depending on all these circumstances, which we can weigh, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to promote consistency. But just two years later, Congress started passing mandatory sentences which were totally inconsistent with the guidelines. The guidelines would have been able to do the types of things you're talking about, but drug use was still a top concern among the public and among politicians. And so they didn't even allow the guidelines to get into a place before they passed mandatory sentences on all drug uh, trafficking and really federalized the drug war and brought it to Washington. And then from that point, it was just a matter of ramping up the punishments. And so you, it, it did become a way of conveying, this is serious to us. Uh, it's not just a matter of uniformity. It is a matter of, we want to punish these people as hard as possible. So we're going to make it a federal crime and we're going to impose stiff punishments. And, and what so you've seen is, uh, in terms of the disparities, which is, again, is a legitimate concern. You don't want luck of the draw judging. And that's what people said, you were, depending on who you're sentencing judge. But what they didn't think about was that what mandatory minimums did was just shift the discretion from the judge to the prosecutor. You're not getting rid of discretion in the system. Now what you have is a system where the prosecutor decides when to, carry, when to bring charges that carry mandatory minimum and when they don't. And so prosecutors do that if somebody cooperates with them or I mean, maybe they have biases. The same thing we were trying to get away with from judges who may have racial bias or other um, things that drive them to treat people differently. Now prosecutors have that discretion and they have the sole discretion because the judges don't even have the power to check their authority. So you didn't get rid of discretion. You just gave it to a different system actor. And so we see the same inequities come up in the system with mandatory minimums because we know, for instance, that prosecutors are more, more likely to charge black defendants with mandatory sentences than they are white defendants. So you didn't get away from that problem. That is, see, that is an, 
incredibly important point that you just made there. Um, you, the, I always think of discretion as a something you couldn't get rid of even if you wanted to, and b well, you know we want discretion. We just want it to be used fairly and and with wisdom. Uh, what we do when we have these uh, periodic bouts of I'm going to get rid of discretion, says the legislature, the Congress, is we, we shift it to a different place. It's kind of like those balloons you see that people blow up the long balloons and they twist them into balloon animals for kids. I always say if you squeeze the balloon here and here, you're not going to get rid of the air. It's just going to move. That's kind of how I see the system. And when you say that the that the prosecutor now has the discretion, what form does that discretion take? How does the prosecutor use that, that discretionary power? Where does it come from? And what's been the result? I mean, you sort of began to explain this. I really want you to enlarge on that point. Yeah, well, what you've done is you've given one system actor enormous power to not only look, prosecutors in our system as part of the executive branch, make the decision about who to investigate, what charges to bring, how many charges to bring, and, and then what sentence they re make uh, recommendations at sentencing. Um, now they have the ability to choose the final sentence because if they bring a charge that carries a mandatory sentence and the person's convicted at trial, the judge is cut out completely. And, and even having the threat of mandatory minimums changes plea negotiations because what you see is prosecutors in, you know, encounter a defendant and say, Look, if you plead guilty and cooperate against these others, I can make sure you get a very light sentence. If you don't, I can hammer you. And we see this every single day. You see, you saw it even in the recent uh, Varsity Blues cases, where you know Lori Loughlin cases involving yeah, the college image college. cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and these people were being told you're going to get 10, 20 years if you don't, and if you plead guilty, you're going to get you know a few months. And now, I faced this myself, and as with those defendants, I was lucky I wasn't facing a mandatory sentence. So the threat was somewhat hollow because the judge was going to have discretion. But what we see in mandatory minimum cases in particular is prosecutors will say to somebody, take this deal, I'll give you three years. If you don't, you're facing a 15-year mandatory minimum conviction at trial. And what should bother people is, going back to our earlier point, if there is a certain amount of time that fits a crime, then there shouldn't be such a disparity between the offer that's made in a plea negotiation and the final sentence somebody receives. If a prosecutor says to somebody, hey, three years is sufficient if you do what I want, that tells us that they think the public could be safe with a three-year sentence. But then to extract an additional 12 years just because the person didn't plead guilty and cooperate. And mind you, they may not plead guilty and cooperate because one, they think they're innocent, or two, they just have a constitutional right to trial that they want to exercise that should not be burdened so much with the threat of severe punishment. If someone said to you, hey, plead guilty and cooperate, or I'm going to break your arm, no one would have the problem seeing the ethical dilemma posed there by letting a system actor do that. But you sure as heck would prefer a broken arm to an additional 10 or 15 years in prison, and yet prosecutors do that every day. So the, the result of this has just been to transfer so much authority in the system to one actor. And I don't, I don't view prosecutors as, you know, differently bad or, you know, uniquely sinister. It's just we have a system of checks and balances because we know that people given authority are going to abuse it or use it in a way that benefits themselves. And what's happened now is prosecutors bludgeon plea deals so often 
that only 3% of Americans today go to criminal trial. Uh, 97% of our criminal cases end in plea deals. And there's just no other. I want to make sure everybody heard that. 3%. And think about any other right we have. This This is like bill of rights stuff, right? So this is what other individual right do we have, an important protection that we forfeit so regularly? It doesn't happen. And that should bother us. In the 1980s, 20% of people went to trial. Now it's, you know, less than 3%. That's a problem. That is a huge change. We're with Kevin Ring. He is the president of FAM, the organization whose full name is probably better spelled out, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Uh, We'll be right back after this quick pause. Stay with us. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus with Simply Safe there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's Simply Safe, S I M P L I S-A-F-E, that's simplysafe.com slash injustice. Hi, we're back. It's Criminal Injustice, and my guest is Kevin Ring. He's the president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, or otherwise known as FAM, and he's been explaining to us the issues and problems raised by mandatory minimum sentences in the criminal system. You know, one thing I usually would start an interview with, and we just got too carried away with interesting stuff right at the top. So I'll ask you now, 
how many people are we actually talking about? I mean, the federal system seems like where this is the most, uh, the, the deepest problem, but these things exist on the state level too, don't they? How many people are in prison because of mandatory minimums? Is there a way to know? We don't know the exact count. Um, and the, you know, like in the federal system, about 70,000 people are sentenced a year. I think about a quarter of those people get mandatory sentences. But what people need to know is that mandatory minimums distort the whole system because the threat of them allows prosecutors to coerce people into taking plea deals. Even those plea deals are longer than they would otherwise be because people are trying to get out from under the mandatory sentence. So it's one of those things where their impact goes beyond just the number of people who receive them. Yeah, so it, you'd have to count not just people who receive the mandatory sentence, but any case in which it was a factor in coming to whatever plea deal happened eventually. And, and as you said, 97% of the time. Do these exist in st uh, on the state level too? It's not just the federal government? That's right. In fact, some states went before the federal government. The most famous were the Rockefeller drug laws that were passed in New York. Nelson Rockefeller passed them. Oh, and, yes. And then in Michigan passed them. And so this was something that politicians at the federal and state level, when the drug war was starting to heat up, were looking for new tools to hammer people. And um, people think of them as a federal invention, but um, the states have been just as eager to pass mandatory sentences. Yeah. And you're reminding me of, uh, of something that happened here in Pennsylvania, where I'm based. Uh, we had repeal of some of our mandatory minimums not that long ago. And prosecutors have now been in our state kind of wanting to reinstate them and to preserve the ones that are left. Uh, and they've been pretty open about it. They just said, we like the leverage, essentially. And that's okay, what so, you're pointing to. Yeah. Yeah. We've been chest deep in that fight. In fact, we worked with Senator Stuart Greenleaf when he was still in oh, the Senate sure. mm -hmm. to try to reform mandatory sentences. You're right. Your court struck them down for, for a different reason, not because of the way they worked. Um, but because they were, um, because of a procedural issue. And the, the prosecutors have tried to uh, reinstate them, as you said, and you're 100% right. It's, it's been interesting, as long as I've been at FAM, to see this argument go from one of public safety to now one of just ease and um, administrative um, burden being lifted. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't want to take everyone to trial. I don't want to have to be put to my proof. If I can threaten people, they're more likely to plead and I can do more. Well, that's just not a constitutional value that we should privilege. I mean, it's, it's not unimportant. Um, we don't want the wheels of justice to come to a halt, but it's just, it's hard to believe that um, a system where you are guaranteed a right like this um, we want it to be forfeited just so prosecutors can bring more cases. It just yeah. doesn't seem like the highest value. One of the things that people always notice and discuss when we're talking about any criminal justice policy and its impact on sentencing is racial disparities. Have mandatory minimums uh, shown that they exacerbate or play a role in racial disparities in sentencing? Well, I think the best you can say is that they haven't done any good. I mean, and I do think there was a time where people thought that they might be part of the answer to racial disparity because you had judges maybe who were harboring implicit or explicit biases and were giving people of different color different sentences. We know today that because of implicit bias that even the hue of the defendant matters to judges, that mm -hmm. dark-skinned blacks get longer sentences than light-skinned blacks who get longer sentences than whites. And so there is, there is an implicit bias that happens. Um, but... I think there was more concern about just 
outright racism and bigotry at sentencing. And the thought was, if well, if we had these one-size-fits-all standards, we could get away from that. But as I mentioned, all it has done is transfer that discretion to a prosecutor who is no more immune to any of those pressures or biases than a judge. And yet you just have one less layer of review. And that's, and that's part of the thing that people need to understand is that, you know, if you were writing an essay um, or, you know, an op-ed and you wanted to get it published, you'd probably have as many people of your friends or people you respected look at it and edit it and give you feedback to get mm -hmm. the best product. And, you know, our sentencing pro process was supposed to be based on separation of powers. Like I said, the prosecutor decides what charges to bring and the legislature defines what crimes there are. And then the judge picks the punishment. Now, everybody has a role. The legislature can set a range. The prosecutor can recommend a sentence and bring forth certain facts. And then a judge, if they get it wrong, they can be appealed. And so you want all of those layers of review to get to the right sentence. That become, that's what creates a better product. But what's happened with mandatory sentences, we've cut the judge out entirely. And so the prosecutor, for whatever reason he or she desires, gets to choose a sentence, and then there's no reviewing it. So here we are, we're maybe 10 years, maybe not that long, but a number of years into a period where there is some actual consensus on criminal justice reform, broadly speaking. I mean, certainly not enough has been done maybe in the policing space, but on questions of corrections and punishment and, and prison populations, we've had real change over the last nine to 10 years, I would say. Uh, has the same been true with mandatory minimums, uh, both federal and state? Where do you see the issue now? What's the momentum pointing to? Yeah, we're definitely making progress um, in the last 15 years in particular. And I think nothing says that more than at the federal level, you saw the passage of the First Step Act, which got rid of some mandatory sentences, reformed others, and address some of the worst and most discriminatory mandatory sentences, which was the 100 to 1 disparity between crack and powder cocaine oh, sentences. Yes. Mm -hmm. So in Congress in 2010 reduced that disparity, but they didn't make it retroactive. And the First Step Act finally did make it retroactive. So 3,500 people who were serving these repudiated sentences finally got relief. And I think what was interesting about that is you had President Donald Trump who ran on American carnage and mm -hmm. law and order you know, sign that bill. And, you know, whatever else anyone thinks of him, the fact that that was a Nixon goes to China moment, and you've seen more conservatives and Republicans join Democrats in supporting reform. You've seen it in red states like Texas, and yes. in Louisiana, and in blue states. And so mandatory minimums in particular, and I should say mandatory minimums as they relate to drugs, um, is an area where you've seen bipartisan progress. And we've been glad to see that. So I understand that FAM has been involved in uh, efforts to get release from prison based on the COVID dangers inside prisons. Uh, has this been general with all kinds of prisoners or just people on mandatory minimums or how, how has it gone and what's that been like? Sure. So we have long believed that it is a complete waste of taxpayer resources, let alone you know, sort of the high social cost to keeping people who are 60, 70 years old, well beyond crime committing years, who are the least likely to reoffend and yet the most expensive to keep incarcerated. Keeping those people in prison has made no sense. That is money that would be better spent in other anti-crime interventions. So we've always thought that. And then when COVID hit, we realized 
that these people, not only shouldn't they be in prison, that now they're sitting ducks for this disease. These are the people most susceptible to COVID because of their age and debilitated health condition. So we started a project um, that was designed to get people in federal prison matched with pro bono lawyers to file for compassionate release, which is at the federal level what it's called. At the state level, it's usually called uh-huh. medical parole or geriatric release. But you're targeting sick and elderly people who are in prison. Most of them have served long sentences. Like I said, some of these people are on walkers. They're no, they're no threat to public safety. And yet we keep punishing and punishing them. And we thought this is a disaster. And luckily in the First Step Act, there was language that said, even if the Bureau of Prisons denies your compassionate release request, you can go to court now and you can ask a judge to review it. And so that's why we recruited all these lawyers, uh, firms across the country really stepped up, uh, gave some of their attorneys uh, to work on this project. We trained them and we have been able to get over 1600 people out of federal prison who really would have been at great risk of COVID. Um, it, you know, hasn't been enough. The Bureau of Prisons could have done more, um, but it's been rewarding because these are people who are getting out now. And like I said, there are no risks to anyone. And yet we were spending millions of dollars to keep them locked up. And that's something we hope that even when COVID ends, that's one of the lessons we learned is that this was a, these were wasted resources uh, holding these people for decades. Yeah, it really does go to a larger point. I mean, I've had this discussion with a few other guests too, that if we want to make a real dent in prison populations, we not only have to pick the low-lying fruit of the drug crimes and the nonviolent crimes and so forth, we lock a lot of people up for violent crimes and then we keep them there for a long long time. And we have to come to grips with that if we're going to make real progress on the overall prison population. We've we've made some made some good first steps um, uh, to pirate the uh, name of that act, but we got a long way to go. Uh, I understand that uh, uh, that there is now a documentary about some of the issues that FAM has worked on and that you're even featured in that. Tell us about that and where can people see it? Sure. Um, it's called The Vanishing Trial, and it's about basically the idea we discussed earlier, which is as a result of mandatory minimums and overzealous prosecution, that trials in the United States are vanishing to the point where less than 3% of all criminal cases end in a criminal trial. You know, you watch Law and Order, every episode ends with a trial. Of course. And, 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 and that's just not reality. And most people don't realize that until they get caught in the system, as I did, which is why I think my case is featured in there as well. Um, and we tell four stories, uh, very different defendants, a couple drug defendants, a gun case, state, federal, white collar, uh, because this is a problem that affects anyone and everyone who you know, has the temerity to not go along with the government when it says, you know, plead guilty and cooperate. If you choose to exercise your constitutional right to go to a trial, you are in for a world of hurt, especially if you lose. Even if you win, you may spend a million or $2 million defending yourself. Uh, which is another reason why so few people go to trial. So the film came out this summer. Um, we have been doing screenings all across the country. It's now, we now have a distributor who is work, uh, I think believe it has, has it on Canopy, which is um, a place that colleges and universities can get to it. Uh, if you go to Collective Eye, who's our distributor, they have all the details there. But if you also go to our website, fam.org, you will see and hear about screenings that we're doing all across the country where we're trying to get this in front of as many people as possible. What I've really enjoyed about it is 
Um, some people have a certain bias about mandatory minimums. They're either for them or against them already. But this is a different way of talking about this because to the extent that people think that punishment should fit the crime, when they see the punishments in this film, they realize they're totally disproportional. They're totally harsh and excessive. And the only reason they are that way is because the person decided to go to trial, not because of what the person did. We think we punish somebody based on what they did. And what you learn in this film is we punish people based on whether they went to trial or not. That seems wrong. No wonder people have a reaction to this film. Well, I, <laughs> I wish you a lot of luck with the film and with the work of FAM. Uh, Kevin Ring is the president of FAM. That's Families Against Mandatory Minimums, an advocacy group that is working to repeal mandatory minimum sentences nationwide. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you for having me. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch. And this episode of Lawyers Behaving Badly from AL.com, from WPMI Television and the ABA Journal News Online concerns Judge James Patterson of Mobile, Alabama. Plenty of people, well, let's just say everyone has opinions about the coronavirus and how to deal with it. And plenty of folks have opinions about the particular ways that government officials have mandated certain responses to the virus. But there are certain officials who should probably keep those opinions to themselves, and especially they should keep those opinions out of official statements and documents. That is what Judge Behaving Badly James Patterson forgot. This incident takes us back to the early days of the pandemic, the spring of 2020. Governors were ordering lockdowns and shutdown orders, and Alabama was no exception. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey had told the residents of her state to stay at home, just as so many other governors were doing then. Well, this apparently did not sit well with Judge Patterson. Because of the stay-at-home order, Judge Patterson had to cancel some hearings he had already scheduled. He did not seem to like this, we can infer. The governor's order would have allowed hearings, however, via Zoom, something like that, virtual hearings. But Judge Patterson thought he shouldn't do this either because if perchance the person would be forced to violate the governor's order, a staff person or IT person, for example, being forced to leave home to make all this work, that would be a problem. In an order dated April 10, Judge Patterson declared that he would not have any virtual hearing. He didn't want anyone, he said, to be forced to, quote, violate Governor Meemaw's order. Get that? Doesn't want anyone violating Governor Meemaw's order. But, you ask, I thought her name was Governor Ivy. Yes, dear listener, that is her name. So, Governor Meemaw? For those of you not raised in the American South, Meemaw is a term of endearment for grandma or grandmother. Variations include Mame or Mama. 
So Judge Patterson is referring to the governor of his state as Governor Granny. Perhaps a comment on her looks, or her age, or her manner, or how her stay-at-home order is treating everyone like grandchildren. According to our sources, lots of people in Alabama call Governor Ivy Governor Meemaw, and it's not meant as a compliment. So, the judge's order, disrespectful at best, misogynistic at worst, because no one, anywhere, has ever seen Judge Patterson refer to male elected officials of a certain age by equivalent male terms. Say, President Pawpaw Trump, who at 74 is only two years younger than the governor, or Senator Jeff Pawpaw Sessions, who is 73. But then there's this. It took just days for the order by Judge Patterson to become public. Twelve days later, he apologized by letter, which went to both the Chief Justice of the state and two different Alabama Judges Associations. I'm sure he must be awfully sorry. Here's what he said, according to WPMI Television. Judge Patterson had, quote, no earthly idea that his order would go to anyone except the lawyers in the case. No one else was meant to see his, quote, idiotic and poor attempt at humor, close quote. Oh, that makes it better. It wasn't intended as a widely circulated public sexist ageist insult. It was intended as a sexist ageist insult just for the enjoyment of the other lawyers in the community. It's something we should enjoy locally, like our regional cuisine. Outsiders might not understand, but we can enjoy it. I feel much better now about this idiot being a judge. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already. And share us all over social media. Please review us. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website too, www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Want to ask Dave? Go to our Ask Dave tab on the website and I'll see if I can answer it on the show. Remember, we are listener supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.